Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Kim Wolfon. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And we just learned no. we just learned you know a whole that? lot about our guest host, Kim no. Wilmot. Do, do you know what that's from? No, I sure it's, don't. Um, it's it's from the movie Annie Hall. It's like right in the beginning. Oh yeah. It's right in the beginning right. of the movie. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's going through his classmates and he's like, I make taluses. And then it pans this one little girl and she goes, I'm into leather. And it's one of my favorite lines from that movie. Wow. So wow. I, I was, I'm um, not into leather personally. Not, not that we're judging. And no, no judgment. No judgment, obviously. But personally, I'm not into leather. Um, but that I was thinking about leather bound books being on your shelf. Yep. And then nope. the first thing that came to my mind was I'm into leather. And that is the first thing that, that came to my great head was a quote from Annie Hall. Great. That is a weirdly deep cut. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, well, listener. <laughs> Hi, listener. Um, as you can clearly tell, we have uh, a new guest host with us this week. Uh, if you listened a couple of weeks ago, Kim showed up and gave us uh, a little chat about uh, her YouTube channel. Kim Wilpon Crafts. Um, where, uh, if everything goes according to plan, I will be making an appearance. Um, I guess we'll be recording in the next week, week or so. And yeah. then whenever that gets edited and thrown up. Probably around Christmas. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so I'll be letting you know, listener, when that comes out. Um, but in the meantime, even though I'm not there, you should jump over to that YouTube channel and subscribe. check it out. Subscribe. Do, do all of the things. Like and subscribe. and Comment. Leave reviews. and Craft with me. Yeah. Yeah. If you're into that. Yeah. If you do that sort of thing. Um, oh, you should also like and subscribe and leave reviews for this podcast. Do it. Since you're here now. Do it if now. If you haven't already. What the hell are you waiting for? Honestly. And they also have a Patreon account where you can yeah. help support. If you love this podcast, go to their Patreon. Support these artists. Yeah. That's, do it. That's it. Uh, it helps so much. Even a dollar helps. Patreon, you're you're looking for 50-50 arts production because that is the parent company that produces this podcast. Um, and by parent company, I mean it's it's me, Ken Sandberg, and your regular co-host, Heather Michelle Lawler, and that is the company. <laughs> <laughs> We're not... Um, it's growing steadily. Yeah. Slowly. Turtle, tortoise pace. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, we but have, aren't we all? We have produced a, a series of YouTube videos recently. Um, I don't know if you've even seen them. I have not. But, uh, but we, I got real excited. When yeah, I was it's, like, it's it's a, um, a series of music videos for songs that my brother, Craig Kelberg, wrote. Um, uh, it's a style of music that he calls medieval rave music. And... Uh, I'll put a link to where these YouTube videos are in the the, the show note doobly-doo thingy, but it's it's basically a series of five uh, combat ballet music videos. I'm I'm mostly angry that we're not watching them right now. Uh, we'll, the we'll, rage. We'll we'll watch them as soon as uh, well. You know what? Screw it. Here, we'll do it. Yay! Uh, dear listener. I'm about to jump five minutes into the future so that you don't have to listen to us watch a video on YouTube. But don't worry, you'll be picking up just as we finish and you'll hear Kim giving applause for the fabulous work we did. Ta-da. So that's act one. Oh, that's so fun. We Yeah, so we, we produced thank, five thank of those. Thank you for sharing that with me. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, listener, you can, you can catch up on what you missed. Um, 
in that five minutes of audio that I just cut because I'm sure it was fascinating. But uh, but yeah, so that's that. Uh, if, if you've checked out the videos, then you know that is some of the other stuff that 5050 Arts Production is doing. And so you can track us down and um, give us money on Patreon. Or if you go to our website, you can buy us a cup of coffee, which is a cool thing. Oh, I love that. You, there's there's a there's a website you can what? go to. You just you put the little icon on your your website and it links to your account and people can be like, oh yeah, it's two dollars for a cup of coffee. I'm gonna buy you a cup of coffee and it automatically I puts. Do, I'm gonna need this information. Yeah, I'll send because it to I you. drink a lot of coffee. And so if someone wants to support <laughs> me and my coffee habit, then I, who am I to stop you from supporting me and my coffee addiction? Right. And especially with the rising price of coffee. Ugh, the way it's things are, so you really hard need to, these days. Yeah. Being addicted to coffee and <laughs> drinking coffee every single day, multiple sometimes multiple times a day. Yeah, it's I've, just really I've had hard to, for us. I've been doing really good about keeping my coffee intake down, but this morning, because it's Monday and I am now in Queens, I had to wake up early to move the car for street cleaning. <laughs> no. Um but so I uh I I, while I was moving the car around, I went and had my first cup of coffee of the day, and then I got back and went, "Nope, that wasn't enough," and had a second. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting back deep into my coffee drinking, and it's. New York will make you do that. Yeah. New York will do that, that to you. Um, all right. Well, I have no idea how long this has turned into for you, listener, but <laughs> I feel like getting to what it is we do on this show. So for you listener who may be new, and if we're doing our job right, every episode is somebody's first episode, right? Yay! Um, So for you, for whom this may be new, and for Kim, (laughs) who has never done this before, uh, what we do here at Campfire Classics is read short stories sight unseen. We select stories from the public domain so that the authors cannot sue us, and we just try to make our way through them. Now, because these tend to be older stories by classic authors. There are a lot of words we don't recognize. Sometimes there are um, accidental outdated penis jokes. One of my favorites is the fact that um, uh, boner was once a word used for mistake. So, oh, I made a boner. I made a mistake, but it's also, you know. I made a boner. Yeah. Um, uh, also, ejaculation was once uh, a word used for he, 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 cli- uh, he, he cried or he exclaimed. So he ejaculated Ejaculated. often comes up. So these things, we acknowledge them. Uh, I'm gooped already. I'm excited. Um, But we also look up strange words and learn some things. But before we get to the story, I like to provide a little bit of uh, fun facts as context for any story that we might be reading. I'm ready. So uh, today, Kim, you will be reading a story by the highest selling novelist of all time. A woman whose writings have only been outsold by the works of William Shakespeare and the Bible. Dame Agatha Mary Clarissa Christie, Lady Malouin. Okay. Uh, So we've already covered Dame Christie at some length on this podcast, but a lot of it was a while ago. And since Kim is a new guest host, I thought I'd do a quick overview of some of her um, career highlights, her biggest accomplishments. So not only is she the number one selling fiction writer of all time with over 2 billion with a B books sold, she also remains the most translated author of all time with her works being translated into 103 different languages for a total of 7,236 different translations as of 2017. Holy shit. That is nearly twice as many translations as the runner up, Jules Verne. Shakespeare, for the record, sits in third. Wow, Shakespeare is like... Hmm. Um, Dame Christie. (laughs) Her book, And Then There Were None, Mm -hmm. is number five on the list of best-selling novels of all time, with over 100 million copies sold. The only books ahead of her, ahead of that book, are The Hobbit, the first of the Harry Potter books, the Little Prince, mm-hmm. and Dream of the Red Chamber, which is one of the top four greatest Chinese novels of Interesting. all time. Uh, and of course, her play The Mousetrap holds the record for the longest initial run of a play in the history of the world. It opened at the Ambassador Theatre uh, on the West End in London on uh, November 25th, 1952, 
As of September 2018, there had been more than 27,500 performances of that play. And in March 2020, it was still running when all of the theaters were forced to shut down by that pesky little pandemic. You can't see it on my face, listener. (laughs) But that fact just got me all the way. Like, what? Yeah, that's nearly 68 years of continual running. That's crazy. Wild. But I mean, like... It's like two and a half generations of human beings. So, uh... Good job, Agatha. Apparently you wrote a popular play. Uh, She was the first ever recipient of the Grand Masters Award from the Mystery Writers of America, and the Crime Writers Association has named her the greatest mystery writer of all time and her book The Murder of Roger Ackroyd as the best crime novel ever. Most of her books and short stories have been adapted for television, radio, video games, graphic novels. Mm -hmm. More than 30 feature films are based on her work. And she's even been portrayed by actresses like Dame Peggy Ashcroft and Vanessa Redgrave. The Agatha Awards, named after Agatha Christie, are literary awards event that present awards for things like best novel, best first mystery novel, um, best historical novel, short story, those sorts of things. Uh, And part of her success in writing came from her knowledge of things like medicines, poisons, and just generally how people die, because she spent time working as a nurse during both world wars. Very, very interesting. So basically, she was just a super badass. My, so this is something you don't know about me, is that my grandmother, who's no longer with us, um, she had many years ago, um, loved Agatha Christie. Awesome. Like you didn't know this before choosing this and before we started filming this, but she loves it. So I, um, one of her favorite movies was Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, the the one from like forty years ago, like or the, whatever, original, the, the, the original, the older one, yeah, yeah, yeah. not not the the newer Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, though I've watched that one too, and I like them both. Mm-hmm. But her knowledge of death and how people die and the it was very, I mean, very fascinating, very very fascinating. That's very cool. Well, so possibly your grandma is responsible for a large percentage of those two billion copies. Of yeah, her yeah. My sold. grandmother was. <laughs> she loved reading, and Agatha Christie was one of her favorites. Yeah. Yeah. She loved a good mystery. Well, and there's a reason she's as popular as she is. I mean, it's yeah. she. Um, I have yet to accurately predict the ending of one of the short stories that we we've read. Like. Interesting. Her, I never, I never get it. I never get it. I always like two thirds of the way through. I'm like, ah, I got this one. Ah, I nailed it, and I got there before Poirot did. And then, nope. Yeah. Nope. Missed nope. it. There's always one more, one more little twist. Um, but today, the story you're going to be reading, it's one of her short stories starring Poirot, Hercule Poirot, oh, the Belgian detective, uh, called "The Adventure of the Italian Nobleman." Cool. So let's get this fire started. The Adventure of the Italian Nobleman. Poirot and I had many friends and acquaintances of an informal nature. Amongst these was to be numbered Mr. Hawker, a neighbor of ours and a member of the medical profession. It was the genial doctor's habit to drop in sometimes of an evening and have a chat with Poirot, of whose genius he was ardent was an ardent admirer. Admirer. Everyone was an ardent admirer of Poirot's genius. Yeah. It's amazing how many of these stories start out with, we were having dinner, and someone who loved my friend Poirot Hello. came in and said, hey, you're real smart. I need you to fix this thing right. for me. Uh, the, the doctor himself, Frank and unsuspicious to the last degree, admired the talents of so far removed from his own. On one particular evening in early June, he arrived about half past eight and settled down to a comfortable discussion on the cheery topic of the prevalence of arsenical, arsenic, arsenical poisons. Who would you say that? Arsenic? Arsenical? 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 Arsenio. Arsenio Hall. The prevalence of Arsenio Hall in in Victorian England was really out of control. If you know it, if you know the correct pronunciation, (laughs) let us know in the comments. Um, Do they have comments? They have comments. 
Comments there's, there's, there's comments. Comment. Yeah, you can let us know. You can please. send us a comment. You can shoot us an email. Fifty fifty arts production yeah. at gmail.com. Find us on any of the social media, um, and please include a GIF of Arsenio Hall <laughs> or a GIF. GIF, GIF. Again, what's with these pronunciations? Um, well, do you say GIF or GIF? I say GIF because it's a what graphic image something, right? I say GIF because it's good. Because it's a G, not G a J. For graphics. Yeah. Right. I say GIF instead of GIF. Anyway, anyway, anyway. It's not GIF because it's not peanut butter. <sighs> you looked so peeved when you said that. <laughs> it's not peanut butter. Damn it. Uh, <clears throat> poisoning and crimes. It must have been about a quarter of an hour later when the door of our sitting room flew open and a distracted female precipitated herself into the room. I like that image. Precipitated? Precipitated yeah. herself. Oh, doctor, you're wanted. Such a terrible voice, it gave me a turn. It did indeed. I recognized in our new visitor, Dr. Hawker's housekeeper, Miss Ryder. The doctor was a bachelor and lived in a gloomy old house a few streets away. The usually placid Miss Ryder was now in a state boarding on incoherence. <laughs> what terrible voice, who is it? And what's the trouble? It was the telephone doctor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's sort of how I react every time the phone rings, too. Oh, God, there's someone with a voice on the other side. I can't handle it. Who wants to talk to me? Um, <laughs> Why didn't you send a text message? First, please. Emails, text. Um, it was the telephone doctor. I answered it. And a voice spoke. Help. It said, doctor, help. They've killed me. Then it sort of tailed away. Who's speaking, I said. Who's speaking? Then I got a reply that just a whisper, it seemed. Foscatine. Something like that regent's court. The doctor uttered an exclamation. Count Foscatini? He has a flat in regent's court. I must go at once. What can, ha what can have happened? A patient of yours, asked Poirot. I attended him for some slight ailment a few weeks ago. In Italian, but he speaks English perfectly. Well, I must wish you good night, Monsieur Poirot. Unless he hesitated. <laughs> Here it comes. I perceive the thought in your mind, said Poirot, smiling. I shall be delighted to accompany you. Hastings, run down and get hold of a taxi. Taxis always make themselves sought for when one is particularly pressed for time, but I captured one at last, and we were soon bowling along in the direction of Regent's Park. It's nice to know that that, is, that has always been true. When you really need a taxi, there are none nowhere to be found. Nowhere. When you don't want a taxi, they're just honking they're just at like, you. It's just like, do you want to get in the back? You want to go down the street? No, I'm, I'm, I'm literally... I'm, I'm going across the street. I'm going to Starbucks. It's right there, dude. It's, it's a it's across the street. I, I can walk. Come on, beep, beep. You want to get in? Taxis. This argument has taken me longer than the walk would have. Regent's Court was a new block of flats situated just off St. John's Wood Road. They had only recently been built and contained the latest service devices. There was no one in the hall. The doctor pressed the lift bell impatiently. And when the lift arrived, questioned the uniformed attendant sharply. The hell have you been, dude? <laughs> Flat 11, Count Foscatini. There's been an accident there, I understand. The man stared at him. First I've heard of it, Mr. Graves, that's Count Foscatini's man, went out about half an hour ago and he said nothing. Is the Count alone in the flat? No, sir, he's got two gentlemen dining with him. What are they like? I asked eagerly. We were on the lift now, ascending rapidly to the second floor on which flat 11 was situated. I didn't see them myself, sir, but I understand that they were foreign gentlemen. You can never trust the foreigners. What? Anyway, he pulled back the iron door. Iron? Okay. He pulled back this the is a iron. Prison? Yeah, like. 
That's a heavy door. door. It's a heavy, wait, oh, wait, the iron door to the elevator, I assume, not the elevator. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But for a second, I was like, I mean, I haven't read on yet, so I don't know, but he pulled back the iron door and I went, yeesh. This where, where did this fortified flat? This, this is panic room? Count Foscatini live. Yeesh. No wonder you haven't heard from him. Iron doors. Okay. He pulled back the iron door and we stepped out of the on the landing. Number 11 was opposite to us. The doctor rang the bell. Ding dong. There was no reply. And we could hear no sound from within. The doctor rang again. Ding dong. And again. Ding dong. We could hear the bell trilling within, but no sign of life rewarded us. This is getting serious, muttered the doctor. He turned to the lift attendant. Is there any pass key to this door? There's one in the porter's office downstairs. Beep, beep. Some taxi cab. Yep. Trying uh, to give someone a ride. Oh, it? that's my ride. <laughs> so sorry. I must be on my way. <laughs> um, is there any pass key to this door? There's one in the porter's office downstairs. Get it then. And look here. I think you'd better send for the police. Proro approved with a nod of the head. The man returned shortly. With him came the manager. Will you tell me, gentlemen, what is the meaning of all of this? Certainly. I received a telephone message from Count Foscatini stating that he had been attacked and was dying. You can understand that we must lose no time if we are, too, if we are not already too late. The manager produced the key without more ado, and we all entered the flat. We passed first into the small square lounge hall. A door on the right of it was half open. The manager indicated it with a nod, the dining room. Dr. Hawker led the way. He followed close on his heels. As we entered the room, I gave a gasp. The round table in the center bore the remains of a meal. Three chairs were pushed back as though their occupants had just risen. In the corner to the right of the fireplace was a big writing table and sitting at it was a man or what had been a man his right hand still grasped the base of the telephone but he had fallen forward struck down by a terrific blow on the head from behind the weapon was not uh, far to seek a marble statue stood where it had been hurriedly put down the base of it stained with blood Yee, what a way to go. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, oftentimes the, the, the clues aren't this obvious. Like there's, there's a mystery about, oh, how did he die? Why did he die? What's going on? I don't understand. This seems. Like she's almost like putting too much out there. Be well, this, this seems very specifically staged. So I'm curious what the mystery is going to be. That's all. Right. The doctor's examination did not take a minute. Stone dead. Must have been. <laughs> really, the big hole in the back of his head kind of gave that away. <laughs> his not breathing. Also, she said stone, like, he said stone dead. And he, the murder weapon was a statue. Was a stone. Yeah. Yep. Oh, come on, dude. I know. I know. Really, you're a medical examiner with the puns? With a pun. With a pun. Come right. on, Doc. Dr. Hibbard. Hawker. Hibbard is the, the doctor uh, in The Simpsons that always uh, laughs at really inappropriate times. Uh, thank you. Thank yep. you for letting me know that quote. <laughs> um, so. Oh, yes. And that is the really up-to-date, <laughs> witty, topical, cultural humor that Listen, you get here I'm at Campfire Classics. I'm the one who came up with a quote from Annie Hall. From Annie Hall, yeah. <laughs> Woo! Mm. <laughs> oh, we would have been we would have been so cutting edge in like 1993. <laughs> Good lord. Oh. Stone dead must have been almost instantaneous. I wonder he even managed to telephone. It will be better not to move him until the police arrive. On the manager's suggestion, we searched the flat, but the result was foregone conclusion. It was not likely that the murderers would be concealed there when all they had to do was walk out. We came back into the dining room. Poirot had not accompanied us in our tour. I found him studying the center table with close attention. 
I joined him. It was a well-polished round mahogany table. A bowl of roses decorated the center and white lace mats reposed on the gleaming surface. There was a dish of fruit, but the three dessert plates were untouched. There were three coffee cups with remains of coffee in them, two black, one with milk. All three men had taken port and the decanter, half full, stood before the center plate. One of the men had smoked a cigar, the other two cigarettes. A tortoiseshell and silver box holding cigars and cigarettes stood open upon the table. I enumerated all these facts to myself, but I was forced to admit that they did not shed any brilliant light on the situation. <laughs> I wondered what Proro saw in them to make him so intent, I asked him. Mon ami, he replied, you missed the point. I am looking for something that I do not see. What is that? A mistake. Even a little mistake on the part of the murderer. So smart. Okay. So we've set up that it's a very, uh, uh, like, it looks like dinner went off as normal and they made it as far as dessert and drinking their wine and smoking their cigarettes. Correct. And then some shit went down. Yeah. But he had enough time to make a phone call. He had enough time to make a phone call. And remember, in in those days, it wasn't like a boop, 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 boop. It was a a rotary phone, right? A a rotary or like you pick up the thing and it's operator, please connect me with. Right. Um, Yeah. So, and yeah, I'm curious. He didn't have them on speed dial. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) So it's not like he could just make a quick call. He's not just pressing like boop, boop, call. So it's not, it's not that, it's not that easy. So was he poisoned? That was one of my thoughts too. And made the call and then like got seen midway through the call and then clubbed or. Right. And also my question is, who were these guys that he was having dinner with? I'm going to go with Russian mobsters. And why were they attacking? I almost want to say it's probably family. I mean, family, if you want to make a reasonable guess, sure. I always jump to Russian mobsters. Or someone (laughs) that this guy has done wrong in the past, you know. Although I suppose he's Italian. It could be Italian mobsters. Right. It doesn't have to be Russian. Right. I don't know. Uh, we'll, We'll see. We'll see. He stepped swiftly to the small adjoining kitchen, looked in, and shook his head. Monsieur, he said to the manager, explain to me, I pray, your system of serving meals here. The manager stepped to a small hatch in the wall. This is a service lift, he explained. It runs to the kitchens at the top of the building. You order through this telephone and the dishes are sent down the lift one course at a time the dirty plates and dishes are sent up in the same manner no domestic worries you understand and at the same time you avoid the wearing publicity of always dining in a restaurant poirot nodded oh fancy yeah real fancy little little they got money little apartment with food elevators money money honey wish i had Uh, a food elevator Little push a button and someone brings me food Ugh. but not like a person because i don't like interacting with people it's just very, like, like push jetsons. a button thing shows up very jetsons yeah. right then the plates and dishes that were used tonight are on high in the kitchen you permit that i mount there oh certainly if you like roberts the lift man will take you up and introduce you but i'm afraid you won't find anything that's of any use They were handling hundreds of plates and dishes, and they'll be all lumping together. Poirot remained firm, however, and together we visited the kitchens and questioned the man who had taken the order from flat 11. The order was given from the a la carte menu for three, he explained. Soup julienne, filet de sole Normandie, tornadoes of beef. What is that? What do you think that is? That's French, for sure. Tornadoes. Ah, okay. So it's a type of soup. It's a fish fillet. And 
I, I like tornadoes of beef. I like the idea that <laughs> somebody just ordered a beef tornado. Tour, I don't speak a lot of French, so. Tor- tornado of beef is literally, tornado it's it's beef. a type of, it's a cut of meat. Great. Um, small round pieces of beef cut from the end portion of beef tenderloin, often cooked with bacon or lard. Okay, that's not pretty good. So there you go. It's like a French beef tenderloin. Nice. Ooh. You're looking at pink. Oh. Looks looks like a pretty ooh. pretty nice little cut of meat there. Yum! Ooh, I want ooh, here we go. I want that. Yeah. yeah. I want tornadoes of beef now. I want a I want a beef tornado. I want a beef tornado. <laughs> uh what time? Just about eight o'clock. I'd take seven thirty two or eight thirty <laughs> like I'm not picky. I should say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm afraid the plates and dishes you have been all have all been washed up by now unfortunate you were thinking of fingerprints i suppose not exactly said poirot with an enigmatical smile i am more interested in count foscatini's appetite did he partake in it of every dish yes but of course i can't say how much of each he ate the plates were all soiled and the dishes empty that is to say with the exception of the rice souffle there was a fair amount of that left. Oh, they didn't like the rice. Souffle. The rice oh, souffle. A weird thing to souffle. Ah, souffle said Poirot, and seemed satisfied with the fact. As we descended to the flat again, he remarked in a low tone, we have decidedly to do with a man of method. Do you mean the murderer or Count Foscatini? The latter was undoubtedly an orderly gentleman. After imploring help and announcing his approaching demise, he carefully hung up the telephone receiver. I stared at Poirot. His words now and his recent inquiries gave me the glimmering of an idea. You suspect poison, I breathed. The blow on the head was blind. Poirot merely smiled. We re-entered the flat to find oh, a local crap. inspector. That means it's probably wrong. <laughs> when Poirot when Faro smiles, he's hiding something. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's more. There's more information. All right. We re-entered the flat to find the local inspector of police had arrived with two constables. He was inclined to resent our appearance, but Poirot <laughs> calmed him with the mention of our Scotland Yard friend, Inspector Jop, and we were. Courted with a grudging permission to remain. <laughs> it was a lucky thing we were, for we had not been back five minutes before an agitated middle-aged man came rushing into the room with every appearance of grief and agitation. This was Graves, valet butler to the late Count Foscatini. The story he had to tell was a sensational one. On the previous morning, two gentlemen had called to see his master. They were Italians. Okay, the, Italian mafia, sorry, yeah. not Russian. Okay. They were Italians, and the elder of the two, a man about 40, gave his name as Signor Ascanio. The younger was a well-dressed lad of about 24. I might be right. Might be family. Um, yeah. Count Foscatini was evidently prepared for their visit and immediately sent Graves out upon some trivial errand. Here the man paused and hesitated in his story. In the end, however, he admitted that, curious as to the purpose of the interview, he had not obeyed immediately, but had lingered about endeavoring to hear something of what was going on. The conversation was carried on in a slow, in a, in a low, in so low, so sorry. <laughs> I'm going to say that sentence again. Go for it. The conversation was carried on in so low a tone that he was not as successful as he had hoped. But he gathered enough to make it clear that some kind of monetary proposition was being discussed and that the basis of it was a threat. Money, 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 money. The discussion was anything but amicable. In the end, Count Foscatini raised his voice slightly and the listener heard these words clearly. I have no time to argue further now, gentlemen. If you will dine with me tomorrow night at eight o'clock, we will resume the discussion. Afraid of being discovered listening, Graves had then hurried out to do his master's errand. This evening, 
the two men had arrived punctually at eight. During dinner, they had talked of indifferent matters, politics, the weather, and the theatrical world. When Graves had placed, the poured upon the table and brought in the coffee his master told him that he might have the, that evening off. Sweet. Was that a usual proceeding of his when he had guests, asked the inspector? No, sir, it wasn't. That's what made me think it must be some business of very unusual kind that he was going to discuss with these gentlemen. That finished Graves' story. He had gone out about 8.30 and meeting a friend, had accompanied him to the Metropolitan Music, Muse, Music Hall in Edgeware. Whoa, okay, let's do that again. That finished Graves' story. <laughs> he had gone out about 8.30 and meeting a friend that had accompanied him to the Metropolitan Music Hall in Edgeware Road. Nobody had seen the two men leave, but the time of the murder was fixed clearly enough at 8.47. A small clock on the writing table had been swept off by Foscatini's arm and had stopped at that hour, which agreed with Miss Ryder's telephone. Summons. I don't know why that was on a different line. Isn't that fun? Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's probably summons. summons. Probably That's probably the page <laughs> break in the original. And right. These are the joys you get when you read off of a Kindle. It's so fun. The police surgeon had made his examination of the body, and he was now lying on the couch. I saw the face for the first time. The olive complexion, the long nose, the luxuriant black moustache, and the full red lips drawn back from the, daz from the dazzling white teeth. Regular listeners will know that in addition to being a literary comedy podcast, Campfire Classics is also a mustache appreciation podcast. Woo so we always enjoy it when a character, even a dead character, shows up with a good mustache. The, with a beautiful, <laughs> a luxuriant mustache, as it reads. Uh, white teeth. Not altogether a pleasant face. Oh. Not altogether a pleasant face? That's what it says. A little snidely whiplash. I guess. Pointy nose, big mustache, shiny teeth. Yeah. Well, said the inspector, refastening his notebook. This case seems clear enough. The only difficulty will be to lay our hands on this Signor Ascanio. Ascanio. I suppose his address is not in the dead man's pocketbook by any chance. As Poro had said, the late Foscatini was an orderly man. Neatly written, in small, precise handwriting, was the inscription, Signor Paolo Ascanio, Grosvenor Hotel. Oh, well, that's convenient. Sure is. Good job, Gee, Foscatini. It's like, that's, it's like that's he great. knew he might die. Great. I wish the murder victim always had the, the, the suspect's right? name and address in their pocket. It's wild. The inspector busied himself with the telephone, then turned to us with a grin. I'm just going to start carrying around the name and address of everyone who I think might want me dead in my pockets. Oh my God. That's... And that way, if I ever turn up dead, the police will have a list of people to start with. Wow. I don't... I, I don't know what to say to that, Ken. I hope I'm not on that list. <laughs> I don't think you are. <laughs> I guess we'll see how the rest of this episode goes. <laughs> Just in time, a fine gentleman was off to catch the boat train to the continent. Well, gentlemen, that's about all we can do here. It's a bad business, but straightforward enough. One of these Italian vendetta things, <laughs> as likely as not. Yes, he jumps to the Italian mob too. All right, yep. I'm not so alone. You're not alone in this, Ken. Thus airily dismissed, we found our way downstairs. Dr. Hawker was full of excitement. Like the beginning of a novel, eh? Real exciting stuff. Wouldn't believe it if you read about it. Poirot did not speak. He was very thoughtful. All the evening, he had hardly opened his lips. As Poirot typically is not a big speaker. No, he's not. He's he listens. Listener. He observes. He watches things. Yeah. And then... That's why he has so many friends. He's such a good listener. And then he monologues at the yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's typical. I've watched everything. I've listened to everything you have to say. Now let me tell you what really happened and why you're stupid. Reader. Is, yeah. Is sort of. Yeah. How he. What says the master detective, eh? Asked Hawker, clapping him on the back. Nothing to work your gray cells over this time. You think not? What could be there? What could there be? Well, for example, there's the window. The window. But it was fastened. Nobody could have gotten out or in that way. I noticed it specifically. And why were you able to notice it? The doctor looked puzzled. Poirot hastened to explain. It is to the curtains that I refer. They were not drawn. A little odd, that. And then there was the coffee. It was very black coffee. Well, what of it? Very black, repeated Poirot. In conjunction with that, let us remember that very little of the rice souffle was eaten. And we get what? Moonshine, laughed the doctor. You're pulling my leg. (laughs) Moonshine? Is that his, his like, his, oh, for goodness sake. Oh, moonshine. Let's go back. It says, moonshine, laughed the doctor. I like that. I'm going to start working moonshine into conversation. Yeah. Moonshine. Moonshine. Never do. so much more charming than (laughs) horseshit. Ridiculous. <laughs> or as I like to do, whatever. That's my typical. That's a classic. I like that. Okay. That's <laughs> a lot of rolling of the eyes and laughing. Beef tornado. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> and never do I pull the leg. Hastings here knows that I am perfectly serious. I don't know what you're getting at. All the same, I confessed. You don't suspect the manservant, do you? He might have been in with the with the gang and put some dope in the coffee. I suppose they'll test his alibi. Without doubt, my friend. But it is the alibi of Signor Ascanio that interests me. You think he has an alibi? That is just what worries me. I have no doubt that we shall soon be enlightened on that point. The daily newsmonger enabled us to become conversant with the succeeding events. Signor Ascanio was arrested and charged with the murder of Count Foscatini. When arrested, he denied knowing the Count and declared he had never been near Regent's Court either on the evening of the crime or on the previous morning. The younger man had disappeared entirely. Signor Ascanio had arrived alone at the Grosvenor Hotel from the continent two days before the murder. All efforts to trace the second man failed. Ascanio, however, was not set for trial. No less a personage, a personage than the Italian ambassador himself came forward and testified at the police court proceedings that Ascanio had been with him at the embassy from 8 till 9 that evening. It's a pretty good alibi. Yeah, sure is. The prisoner was discharged. Naturally, a lot of people thought that the crime was a political one and was being deliberately hushed up. Perot had taken a keen interest in all these points. Nevertheless, I was somewhat surprised when he suddenly informed me one morning that he was expecting a visitor at 11 o'clock and that visitor was none other than Escanio himself. He wishes to consult you. Dutois... Hastings, I wish to consult him. What about the Regent's Court murder? You're going to prove that he did it. A man cannot be tried twice for murder, Hastings. Endeavor to have the common sense. Ah, that is our friend's ring. A few minutes later, Signora Ascanio was ushered in. A small, thin man with a secretive and furtive glance in his eyes. He remained standing, darting suspicious glances from one to the other of us. Monsieur Poirot. My little friend tapped himself gently on the chest. Be seated, senor. You received my note? I am determined to get to the bottom of this mystery. In some small measure, you can aid me. Let us commence. You, in company with a friend, visited the late Count Foscatini on the morning of 
Tuesday the 9th, the Italian made an angry gesture. I did nothing of the sort. I have sworn in court. Precisement. And I have a little idea that you have sworn falsely. You threaten me? Bah! I have nothing to fear from you. I have been acquitted. Exactly. And as I am not an imbecile, it is not with the gallows I threaten you, but with publicity. Publicity. I see that you do not like the word. I had an idea that you would not. My little ideas, you know, they're very valuable to me. Come, senor. Your only chance is to be frank with me. I do not ask to know whose indiscretion brought you to England. I know this much. You came for the special purpose of seeing Count Foscatini. He was not a count, growled the Italian. Oh. Okay, seeing true colors right now. Oops. Yep, yep, yep. Letting mm-hmm, things mm-hmm, slip, mm-hmm, dude. Mm-hmm. I have already noted that fact that his name does not appear in the Almanac de Gotha. Never mind. The title of count is often useful in the profession of blackmailing. I suppose I might as well be frank. You seem to know a good deal. I have employed my gray cells to do some advent, some advent, uh, advantage. I'm going to say that line again. Yep. I have employed my gray cells to some advantage. He, uh, so he, he often refers to, um, as, as he calls it, he, he speaks French, so I always right. give him a French accent. He's little gray cells. It's, it's his it's, brain. It's his brain, yeah. yeah. The, the gray matter. He's yeah, I love that. little gray cells. Come, Senor Ascanio, you visited the dead man on the Tuesday morning. That is, that is so. Is it not? Yes. But I never went there on the following evening. There was no need. I will tell you all. Certain information concerning a man of great position in Italy had come into this scoundrel's possession. He demanded a big sum of money in return for the papers. I came over to England to arrange the matter. I called upon him by appointment that morning. One of the young secretaries of the embassy was with me. The count was more reasonable than I had hoped, although even then the sum of money I had paid him was a huge one. Pardon? How was it paid? In Italian notes of comparatively small denomination, I paid over the money then and there. He handed me the incriminating papers. I never saw him again. Why did you not say all this when you were arrested? In my delicate position, I was forced to deny any association with the man. And how do you account it would make for me the look ad- guilty, right? Dumbass. And how do you account for the events of the evening then? I can only think that someone must have deliberately impersonated me. I understand no money was found in the flat. Poirot looked at him and shook his head. Strange, he murmured. We all have the little gray cells, and so few of us know how to use them. Good morning, Senor Ascanio. I believe your story. It is very much as I had imagined, but I had to make sure. After bowing his guest out, Poirot returned to his armchair and smiled at me. Let us hear M. Le Capitain Hastings on the case. Well, I suppose Ascanio is right. Somebody impersonated him. Never, never will you use the brains of the good God has given you. (laughs) Recall to yourself some words I uttered after leaving the flat that night. I referred to the window curtains not being drawn. We are in the mouth, we are in the mouth, we are in, we are in the month of June. We are in the mouth of June. (laughs) Wow. June is wide open. Who's June and what's she doing with her mouth? Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) It is still light at eight o'clock. The light is failing by half past. French. There you go. Thank you, Ken. Yep. I perceive a struggling impression that you will arrive someday. Now, let us continue. The coffee was, as I said, very black. Count Foscatini's teeth were magnificently white. Coffee stains the teeth. 
Sure does. We reasoned from that that Count Foscatini did not drink any coffee. Yet there was coffee in all three cups. Why should anyone pretend Count Foscatini had drunk coffee when he had not done so? I shook my head, utterly bewildered. Come, I will help you. What evidence have we that Ascanio and his friend, or two men posing as them, ever came to the flat that night? Nobody saw them go in. Nobody saw them go out. We have the evidence of one man and a host of inanimate objects. You mean... I mean the knives and forks and plates and empty dishes. Ah, but it was a clever idea. Graves is a thief and a scoundrel. But what a man of method. He overhears a portion of the conversation in the morning, enough to realize that Ascanio will be in an awkward position to defend himself. The following evening, about eight o'clock, he tells his master he's wanted at the telephone. Foscatini sits down stretches out his hand to the telephone, and from behind, Graves strikes him down with the marble figure. Then quickly, to the service phone, dinner for three, it comes, he lays a table, dirties the plates and knives and forks, but he has to get rid of the food too. Not only is he a man of brain, he has a resolute and capacious stomach. <laughs> but after eating three tornadoes, the rice souffle is too much for him. He even smokes a cigar and two cigarettes to carry out the illusion. Ah, but it was magnificently thorough. Then having moved on the hands of the clock to 847, he smashes it and stops it. The one thing he does not do is draw the curtains. But if there had been a real dinner party, the curtains would have been drawn as soon as the light began to fall. Then he hurries out mentioning the guests to the lift man in passing. He hurries to a telephone box and as near as possible to 847, rings up the doctor with his master's dying cry. So successful in his idea that no one ever inquires if a call was put through from flat 11 at the time. Except Hercule Poirot, I suppose, I said sarcastically. Not even Hercule Poirot, said my friend, hmm. with a smile. I am about to inquire now. I had to prove my point to you first, but you will see. <laughs> I shall be right. And then Japu, I have already given a hint, will be able to arrest the respectable graves. I wonder how much of the money he has spent. Poirot was right. He always says, confound him. <laughs> and that is the end. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one. Uh, I did have my suspicions of Graves when we were reading it. The beginning, I was like, no, these two men, they're giving us all these details. But he said, what is missing, right? Yeah. What is missing here? He was too full to eat the rice souffle. too full to eat the rice souffle. Yeah. That's a great detail. I yeah. love that. That and the um, uh, 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 coffee stains your teeth. Yes. I love that. Another great detail. Another great detail. Yeah. I love that. And that's like, that's what makes for me, that's what makes the Christie mysteries so fun is that there's always like the little detail that if you go back and reread, you're like, well, duh. Yeah. Obvi I should, like, obviously. Yeah. I was like, well, why, why are we noting how white his teeth are? You know, as you're reading through the first time you're going, oh, you're just like describing him, yeah. right? He's got a beautiful mustache. He's not that nice looking, but his teeth are so bright and yeah. Hmm. Well, okay. and she does, she does such a great job of, um, slipping those details in when she's describing a, a bigger thing. Correct. It is like his mustache didn't matter, but she mentioned the mustache, his nose didn't matter, but she described that he had kind of like a long, long nose. nose and you know, his, the, his, olive, the skin. olive skin didn't matter, but she described it because she's describing this Italian gentleman with a mustache and sparkly teeth, but the teeth right. was the only thing that mattered. She's so good at doing that, slipping those things in. And also I love that, you know, in there, Graves was saying when he was telling his story, his giving his alibi or whatever of the, of the two Italian men that he had heard parts of the conversation, but then didn't hear anything else, you know, leaves yeah. you to that kind of like, huh? 
oh, I wonder what they were talking about. Oh, right. oh, oh money. Oh, oh, they sounded angry. Oh, right, okay. right, right. Yeah. And how much did he flourish on that conversation? Right. Yeah. Oh, they were angry. Like, were they angry? Maybe they weren't, but maybe they were. Maybe there was no flourishing at all. Yeah. Who knows? And Mysteries. in the end, it didn't matter because he just killed the guy. Because he's dead. Because <sighs> he's already, I mean, or else there would be no murder mystery. Or else there would be no murder mystery. What do you think entertainment would be like if it weren't for things like um, war and murder and heartbreak? and An episode like, of Lizzie McGuire. <laughs> nothing Ooh. really happens there i mean listen nostalgia yay will but nothing nothing there's not there's barely any turmoil between the friendships and when there is it's like two seconds i mean they hit hard on you know being a preteen and puberty and stuff but i would say hard in a, in a very light way they tap on preteens degrassi does really well at that but so that's it. That's um I would say it'd be like Lizzie McGuire. Entertainment without conflict is or, Lizzie McGuire. Oh, or <laughs> Yeah, I honestly I was just thinking like Franklin and Little Bear from like Nick Jr. Do you, I don't know if you know those tales. No, but that one missed in, me. Like childhood stuff, but I was just thinking, I don't know, there might be some more conflict there than Lizzie McGuire. I don't know. And I'd have to watch back. Or, Listener, tell us what you think. What, yeah, what do you think, listener? What would what would the state of entertainment be without um, assholes, without bad people, without well, that kind of conflict? And here's anyway. my question for you. Do you think that in these stories that these people are all bad? Because I, I don't, I mean, as an actor, you have had to play not great, you know, not sure. people who have, I don't call them the, maybe stereotypically they're called bad the guys. The bad guys, yeah. Um. But I don't, I just don't believe that even, I don't know, I, the bad guys, there's still like a level of like human. We can't just like take them out as yeah. a terrible, I don't know. But I mean, killing someone is pretty darn terrible. It's so pretty darn terrible. Yeah. And I, I, there's not a lot. You can't come back from that one. And, 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 and he killed him for money. Like he killed him thinking that there was money stowed away in the apartment yeah, somewhere. Yeah, that's that pretty he was bad. Stay. Like that's, it's. Pretty rough. All right, I redact my statement. There are there are bad guys. <laughs> there, in this are, world. there are bad people in the yeah, world. Yeah, okay. There's really terrible people in the world. Although what does what does make stories like this interesting is what you're looking for is whether it's a bad person or a good person, you're looking for the human motivation. Correct. It's not it's, it's not, not murder. Like he didn't murder the guy because he thought it'd be fun to kill someone. He Ugh. murdered it to, to get something out Ugh. of it. Um so yeah, but I mean bad person. Bad person. Not psychopath, not just like you know. Pulling the wings uh, off yeah. of insects. Sort of, I mean, there's incentive there, right? I mean, it's like uh, you haven't started watching Squid Games, and I don't I have spoil not. anything for anyone. But incentive, right? Like, it's all about what's the what? What is your um? What drives you? Yeah. What is your price? Yeah. What's the price? Ooh, 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 ooh! ooh this took a turn. Um, Dolan and I sometimes stream on Twitch, and we play. Um, Dolan is my fiance. And we play um, this game called Danganronpa. And it is this like um, graphic novel of sorts, murder mystery. I love murder mysteries. I'm fascinated by them. Um, But in the first version of it, we're on the second iteration of the game. Uh, I heard the third one's the best. So we're very much looking forward to that. But the first iteration, there's all these different like incentives of like why someone would choose to murder it was wild cool it was wild yeah uh that sounds fascinating i might have to track that game down the game is really fun because it's more story based and like strategy based i guess right yeah and listener if you're looking for something to 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 do some evening apparently go check out twitch yeah twitch is fun (laughs) watch him stream a murder mystery graphic novel uh his name is um not underscore uh underscore dirt bag. Not a dirt bag. Not a dirt bag. That's easy enough to remember. Yeah. Uh all right. Well, I think that just about wraps us up. Um, dear listener, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that what I like to do here at the end is give you a little bit of a um 
secret passcode, I guess, uh, a little something that when you're reaching out and messaging us over the coming week, you can send so that I know you listened all the way through and got to the end. So this week, uh, please send us an email at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or track us down on any of the social media sites. Um, Just look for Campfire Classics podcast. We're pretty easy to track down. Shoot us a message, let us know what you think about this story and send us the secret passcode, Beef Tornado. Beef Tornado. It's an easy one to remember. Or you can do it in emojis too. I wanna see that. Oh, send us a beef tornado emoji. Yes. Oh, I'm really curious to see what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. A beef and a tornado. Beef tornado. Yeah. Uh, Cool. So that's all of that business. Uh, Again, like, follow, subscribe. Tell five friends about Campfire Classics and make them listen. And um, Force them to. And then if those five friends tell five friends and those five friends tell five friends, then that's kind of how a pyramid scheme works and um, wow and soon we will now take campfire over the world classics is a pyramid <laughs> scheme trying to take over the world uh kim remind people where they can find you they can find me on instagram at kim Wilpon crafts uh and on youtube also kim Wilpon crafts and that's it that's where you that's where you can find me great yeah uh Track her down, track us down, say hi, do the things. and Be until, my friend. <laughs> and until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And then the theme song comes in. And it's I'm upset. I'm into leather again. <laughs>